the National Archives podcast series. Kapow! 50s Britain versus the Comics Menace. Presented by Joseph Pugh. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the National Archives, particularly if you've come further than the front door. And hello also to anyone listening to this talk online or as a download. So, before we start, I want to be clear that the title today is, is Kapow! 50s Britain versus the Comics Menace. That's Kapow with a K. I'm not at any point going to be talking about Tapow, the soft 80s a rock group who had a big hit with China in your hand in 1987. If anyone was expecting that, I'm very sorry. Hopefully you'll be able to put up with the next 50 minutes or so. Pow, um, or Kapow, is defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as a word representing the sound of a blow, punch, shot, etc. Or if you're George Pumphrey of the Comics Campaign Council, Kapow is one of a whole range of words, including glug, thunk, ping and ha, which are poverty-stricken slang, unacceptable Americanisms and, in fact, expressions which are not words at all. George Pumphrey was right at the end of what had been years of pretty sustained attacks on comics in the UK and America uh, that culminated in Britain uh, with cabinet-level discussions and the passing of an Act of Parliament whose sole purpose was to ban the sale of objectionable comics, comics that were likely to corrupt in the UK to prevent them falling into the hands of impressionable children on penalty of a final imprisonment. Now, when I first mentioned to colleagues I was thinking of giving this talk, the reaction of a number of them was, well, I didn't know we had comics here. Well, uh, we we do, but there are some. And that act that I was mentioning, the 1955 Harmful Publications Act, which is is still in force, is the reason that we hold them. These are are two of the comics that civil servants went out and bought in order to show Prime Minister Winston Churchill the kind of thing that 50s kids were reading as a government-considered action. And I'll be looking more at, at that selection later on. Now, in the course of the anti-comics campaign, really hair-raising accusations were made about the power of comics and about their effects on young people and vulnerable adults. They were attacked on literary, moral, artistic, nationalistic, psychological, commercial, racial, sexual, political grounds, probably a couple more I've forgotten. A lot of mud was thrown, basically. And I put some of those criticisms up on the screen earlier, and those were just the more polite ones taken purely from Hansard. There was also a repeated insistence that the comics available in 1950s Britain called at first American-style comics and then simply horror comics, were fundamentally different from anything that had been seen before in this country, a tidal wave of transatlantic filth that was almost literally poisoning young British minds who'd never been exposed to its like before. Now, I'm going to suggest that wasn't the case, and I'm going to do that by trying to put 50s comics in their proper cultural context. Never believe uh, what you read uh, on, on advertising. I'm not just going to talk about the 50s. I'm going to talk a little bit about what might be called the family history of the comic book, and I'm also going to be talking a bit more about popular fiction generally and about what wasn't felt to be appropriate reading material for young people. We'll see, and I'm sure this won't surprise you, that what children read and what adults uh, want them to read are not necessarily the same things. Having done that, I hope we'll have some useful tools that we can use not only to understand the post-war attacks on comics, why they happened and what they tell us about Britain in that immediate kind of post-war decade between Glenn Miller and Elvis but perhaps also to see the antecedents of some very 21st century concerns about culture and influences on young people, perhaps at the very end if we have time, if we can talk about that. So where do we start? Let's start by agreeing what, what we're talking about. What, what is a comic? It's actually quite a, quite a tricky question. Um, for some outraged readers in the 50s, a comic was a bit like obscenity, hard to define, but you knew it when you saw it. The Harmful Publications Act applies to any book, magazine or like work which consists wholly or mainly of stories told in pictures with or without the addition of written matter. But is a comic, whether a strip or a comic book, just a story told in pictures? It's a bit more than that, although experts struggle to say exactly how. It's a strange hybrid literary and artistic form with its own unique visual language and rules. When you read a comic, you follow those rules without really thinking about them, but they're pretty well drilled into you. The way one panel follows along from another, the order the text is read in, and most importantly, the interaction between the images and the text. It's the unique nature of that interaction between pictures and text. It's a really key thing to me that defines a comic as distinct from a picture book or illustrated text. And if we look at how comics developed, we can see how some of these rules, both literary and artistic, are pulled together from other cultural forms until in the 19th century they can really start to offend people. I have to pick somewhere to start, so let's start a long, long time ago, um, because the idea of putting words and text together, obviously, uh, to produce a reaction is as old as the hills. Here's a tomb painting from about 1900 BC, and the text reads, I've been roasting since the beginning of time. I've never seen the like of this goose. (laughs) 
Oh, that's not, I wasn't expecting that. I thought you wouldn't. But anyway, it's comedy, it's comedy of a sort. It's comedy of familiarity because, you know, watch pot, all that kind of stuff. But it is, uh, what, what happens next is a sequence of pictures telling a story. So here's, you can find an example of that very easily in our own collections. Here's an, an illumination from the Black Book of the Exchequer, which dates from the 13th century. And at the top, you have Henry II, King of England, ruler of the great um, Oishavar Empire, on his deathbed in 1189. And cut to the scene below, in which a group of bigwigs are discussing the contents of the king's will. So you have two adjacent panels, which are each giving us a bit of the story. But it's a long process bringing those two things together to make a sequence of pictures with text. Here's another useful example from the archive. Might be familiar to some of you. It's a picture from about 1567, showing the explosion at Kirkerfield, in which uh, Lord Darnley, the husband of Mary Queen of Scots, was killed. And uh, to our eyes, it's quite weird, because it shows everything happening at once, You've got Darnley being buried on the bottom right-hand side, but you've also got him lying in the field on the top, on the top right. So it's not obviously sequential. But what we have picked up is the, uh, the speech bubble. You can see in the top left of the image, the young King James VI, um, it says, uh, uh, Judge and revenge my cause, O Lord. So we can see that before the end of the 16th century, we've theoretically got all of the elements we need for a comic. What a pity Shakespeare was a dramatist. <laughs> If we skip to the 18th century, if we look at Hogarth, here's the first scene from The Rake's Progress in which um, the young son first inherits the dosh that's going to ruin him. It's one of a series where we need to look at every picture to make sense of the story, which is great as we try and trace the family history of the comic, but where's the text? There's this rather factuous poem down the bottom here, commenting on the action in a very oblique way. Um, and in fact, within the image, Hogarth uses a lot of text. There's text here in the account book uh, that tells us the boy's Tom, and he's down from Oxford, and he's the only one that has to spend any money. And in the centre here, there's text showing us what kind of things he's inherited, mortgages, India bonds, leases, indentures, that, that kind of thing. Hogarth uses text uh, th- throughout the work, but it's, it's not quite the way that we're looking for. The other thing to mention about Hogarth, of course, is it's really savage social satire. It features lots of violence, alarming images of madness, surgery, poverty, prostitution, and STDs. But that's fine because, obviously, it's, it's art. If we go to the end of the century and look at James Gilray, it's a little frustrating. We've got characters using speech bubbles, but it's just a cartoon again. There's no sequential narrative like we see in Hogarth. So if we, if we sidestep for a second and look at, look at character, comics don't need recurring characters uh, to be comics, but the characters that have appeared in them have been shaping our understanding of what comics are really since, uh, since the 19th century. This is, uh, this is Dr. Syntax, and you could claim, if you, if you talk very fast, as I intend to, that he's the first comic book character... Um, he appeared in a series of illustrations in the poetical magazine drawn by Thomas Rowlandson uh, with text supplied by William Coombe called The Schoolmaster's Tour. But these illustrations were republished and reprinted extensively over the next decade and spawned two sequels. Um, and Dr. Syntax was massively merchandised. You could buy Syntax comedy wigs and Syntax hats and Syntax crockery. Um, Dr. Syntax head is a point of land uh, just by Land's End, uh, which has the same um, uh, weird shape as his face, the kind of banana uh, thing going on. Um, and syntax leads directly to John Bull, Mr. Punch, and a whole host of comic uh, characters. And what the massive success of syntax shows us is how the market for comic papers uh, of various types was expanding in Britain. A Hogarth or a Gil Ray print might have shifted a few thousand copies. Punch in the 1860s has a circulation of about 50,000 a week. And by the end of the century, the new penny papers get more than ten times that circulation. So the market's just getting bigger and bigger. And lots of these papers, the more down-market ones, are, are not famous to us um, We'll come back to a lot of obscure kind of comics and periodicals as, as, as we go on. Um, Judy and Fun had uh, very different political slants to Punch, and uh, they were a lot cheaper, so they appealed to a, a much lower middle-class audience. This is the, um, the James Sullivan uh, cartoon or comic strip, Take a Pick, that, that admirer from, from Fun in 1879, which demonstrates nicely how similar and how different uh, Victorian strips were to our own. You can see there are sequential frames but the text lives underneath, not within them. It's a, how well you can see it, it's a kind of, it's a Kathy Bates um, misery-style tale. I want to see the comic artist, he says to your maid at the door. Uh, don't know the name, send him away, you tell her, but he will come. I'm a stranger to you, he says. Yes, you reply, go away. But I'm a great admirer of yours, he says. I want to see how you do it all, he says, tipping up your work to peep under. Then he looks down your collar to see where your funniness comes from. You get quite annoyed. At length, he produces and sharpens a great knife to cut a door in you with the view of expecting your joke works and the trouble you have to persuade him not to. <laughs> so when you combine um, the, the, the kind of wit of punch and fun with an audience-grabbing character like Dr Syntax, the result is um, Ali Sloper, one of the most significant 
British comic creations ever. But before I move on to him and his successes, I want to talk more about children's reading in the 19th century. The abolition of newspaper stamp tax in 1856 caused a massive printing boom. Publications could now be rushed out for pocket money prices, and, and publishers were still soon fighting over this children's market. And the result was the, was the penny dreadful. Why were they called penny dreadfuls? Was it the level of horror and violence? Was it that they were dreadful? I'm delighted to say it was both. <laughs> Here's one example from the British Library. Ernest Keane, boy detective. And now I should say, that, that's not him on the left. That's actually him on the right in drag <laughs> um, as, a, as a governess. There's a lot of dense text in the, in the few pages of each kind of short weekly instalment, but um, other illustrations, I assure you, include bloody murder, someone having a skeleton tied to them, and a corpse floating in the Thames. I have to say, the plot I found completely impossible to follow, um, but it begins like any Gothic novel with a young man denied his birthright, contemplating suicide, and goes rapidly downhill from there. <laughs> its, its author, in addition to helpful tips in criminal slang, um, to be buffed on is to be informed against, apparently. He says that part of the object in writing this series is to present a hero who performs deeds of daring in the cause of honesty. Now, as the historian Matthew Sweet unfortunately pointed out, Ernest is a rather bizarre man-boy uh, hero, a trait that some might suggest he shares with um, Superman. But he's as nothing compared to some of the other protagonists of um, Penny Dreadfuls, a, a bizarre collection of anxious kind of teen pirates and conflicted highwaymen who are never really quite sure how much they should be enjoying themselves while committing a lot of crime. Or a collection of popular anti-heroes and criminals, Dick Turpin, the murderous highwayman, was a huge Victorian uh, fictional star. And it's no wonder that, in the words of Barry Ono, who collected this stuff, during the Victorian period, everything, with the exception of the boys' own paper, was sneeringly designated pernicious literature, if it happened to be a boys' book issued in weekly penny numbers. Parents, schoolmasters, magistrates, etc. were wont to condemn them all without troubling to scan a page, plus a hiding the hapless boy saw his book consigned to the flames. And the boys' own paper was spared because it was published by the Religious Tract Society, or as only described it, a semi-highbrow goody-goody. Instead, working-class kids thrilled to um, Varney the Vampire, Castle Fiend, Galloping Dick the Boy Highwayman, the practically X-rated Wild Boys of London, and hundreds more, Edward Lloyd, the publisher of Varney, who made his money from um, cheap knockoffs of Dickens with titles like um, Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleberry, <laughs> demanded from a hapless illustrator more blood, much more blood, spouting blood, in fact, and more prominent eyes. <laughs> As you might imagine, Penny Dreadfuls had some critics. Writing in 1875, Louisa May Alcott, um, the author of Little Women, used her novel Eight Cousins to attack what through her thinly-veiled character, Aunt Jessie, she calls popular stories, first for their emphasis on smartness over honesty, and then for their slang. My sons are neither bootblacks nor newsboys, she says, and I object to hearing them use such words as screamer, bully and buster. I cannot think they will help to refine the ragamuffins if they read them, and I'm sure they can do no good to the better class of boys who through these books are introduced to police courts, counterfeiters' dens, gambling houses, drinking saloons and all sorts of low-life uh, but she, she had a wider problem than the kind of the mere window dressing of these story settings. Uh, really, she's quite keen on this kind of stunting of the youthful imagination. She says sceptically, referring to exactly this kind of, is it natural for lads from 15 to 18 to command ships, defeat pirates, outwit smugglers, and in the end go to Washington at the express desire of the president? It gives boys such wrong ideas of life, shows them so much evil and vulgarity, I can't bear to see such crowds of eager little fellows at the libraries reading such trash, weak when it is not wicked and totally unfit to feed the hungry minds that feast on it for want of something better. I find it a bit strange that uh, Alcott suggests the only reason boys read these books is they can't get anything else in a library, but fickle British kids show that they would desert their favourite books if a more exciting kind of publication came along. Ali Sloper first appeared in, in Judy in 1867, the creation of Charles H. Ross, drawn by his wife, um, Mary Duval. And after a few issues, it disappeared, only to come back again in 1869, drawn by Ross's 18-year-old second wife, Emily de Tessier, under the pseudonym of the first wife, which must have been a little bit peculiar. Like Dr. Syntax, who you saw, he's got this rather kind of unique face. He's got his back to his head. He's got this huge kind of nose. Sloper was a massive phenomenon, again, massive merchandising times and so on. Ali Sloper's Half Holiday that you hear, see here debuted in 1884. And it's one of the most successful British um, comics ever produced, initially aimed at adults before beginning to become popular with children. And one other reason 
say, for Ali Sloper's popularity apart from the writing. You can, you can see it along the top here. It's, it's the Railway Accident Life Policy, um, for, which paid out 150 quid, which is, which is quite a sum in um, 1889, to anyone killed in a railway accident and subsequently found with a copy of the paper on their person. <laughs> um, by 1895, the magazine boasted, if that's the right word, nine payouts. <laughs> Sloper's successor was one of the early forays into publishing by Alfred Harmsworth, Comic Cuts, and at least two generations of children, many who were in the House of Commons during the 50s comics debates, grew up on Comic Cuts and remembered it very fondly, and they contrasted it with the sort of trash that, again, benighted 50s children were reading as as Harmsworth contrasted his new paper with the Penny Dreadfuls that uh, that it started to replace. And he declared emphatically, no harm can come from the reading of any of our publications. However, that wasn't necessarily everyone's view at the time. Harmsworth's rather, rather kind of spineless biography attacked 1890s Penny Dreadfuls as sordid and trash and complains that they gave away toy knives and guns. But it also admits that Comic Cut's A Hundred Laughs for a Hapenny was derided in tone and price as appealing to errand boys, contributing nothing to the moral elevation of its readers, silly to the point of idiocy. And in a kind of Gerald Ratner fit, it admits... The paper had nothing to recommend it as a literary production. The best that could be said was that it helped to restrict the scope of the still less desirable types of publication. The reputation of the paper, not its circulation, I stress, which was huge, was so low that when Harmsworth disparaged comic cuts as the poor man's punch, punch threatened him with legal action. The most damning contemporary verdict on the new comic came from A.A. Milne, who wrote simply, Harmsworth killed the penny dreadful by the simple process of producing a halfpenny dreadfuller. But who cared if A.A. Milne wasn't buying it? Everyone else was. Harmsworth uh, succeeded over a period of time in making the children's weekly genteel. And so what he'd done is produce popular reading matter that came to be regarded as improving. And this is a central Victorian idea, obviously, that um, the mind of the beholder is improved by the eye, that you engage with great art and literature and that can make you a better person, and that the reverse is also true. So I apologise um, for, for this afternoon. Harmsworth had captured a lower-class market at what his biographer charmingly calls immature minds. They needed improving. Surely there was nothing the unruly lower classes needed less than the literature of violence. In the pages of Comic Cuts, violence was not carried out by heroic low-born highwaymen or pirates. It was slapstick, nonsense, farcical, trivial. So the, thus the Victorian establishment colonised the penny paper. But, but interestingly, Comic Cuts also represents the first serious uh, American comic invasion of Britain. It was at the vanguard of a host of publications that were incredibly dependent on material imported from comics from the United States. And that's what we'll turn next. As late as the 1890s, The Yellow Kid, America's best-loved comic strip, still owed a debt to Hogarth, sometimes used speech bubbles, but generally the text was all over one large panel written on the size of objects from people's outfits. And at the turn of the century, this gradually changed. So let's leave the violent, bloody and corrupting amusements of the 19th century and move into the 20th century and kids with guns. While British teens were thrilling to the adventures of Sapper's bulldog Drummond, who merrily offs midgets, gorillas and, uh, and the Bosch, obviously... American readers, uh, in addition to, to, to reading Phil Hardy here, could find half a dozen other popular strips featuring, in the words of Brian Walker, the exploits of con men, hustlers and promoters in the world of racetracks, boxing rings and saloons. Oh yes, the comics were growing up. The 30s were a golden age, in fact, for the form. Buck Rogers ran from 1929, along with Tarzan, Dick Tracy, who you can see there being quite graphically violent and with a, a kind of quip to, um, quip to go with it, uh, with his right hook. He started in 1931. Prince Valiant came along in 1937. And some of these strips had a new kind of writer. Raymond Chandler famously wrote that Dashiell Hammett took murder out of the Venetian vase and dropped it in the alley. Well, that that went for comics too. This is um, Super Agent X-9, drawn by Alex Raymond, who went on to create Flash Gordon. And it was written first by Hammett, author of The Maltese Falcon, and then by Leslie Charteris, creator of The Saint. The popularity of hard-boiled fiction meant that a few writers working simultaneously in film... The, a few writers working simultaneously in film, novel and comic forms. But while their books flew off the shelves by the mid-1930s, comics like those of Alex Raymond were coming under considerable attack in some quarters. Writing in Forum magazine in 1936, John Ryan was beside himself with outrage. Portraying sadism, cannibalism, bestiality, crude eroticism, torturing, killing, kidnapping, monsters, madmen, creatures which are half-brute, half-human, low melodrama... Tales of crime and criminals, extravagant exploits in strange lands on other planets, pirate stories, vulgarity, cheap humour and cheaper wit, sentimental stories designed for the general level of the moronic mind. All these, day after day, week after week, have become the mental food of American children, young and old.
say what you think. If Ryan disliked the extravagant exploits of some characters, he was about to get an even bigger shock. Superman, the Green Lantern, Batman and Robin, the Flash, Wonder Woman, Captain America, all those characters have in common that they, they originated in just, just four years, between 1938 and 1941. There were lots of others that haven't stood the test of time quite so well. Dr. Fate, Johnny Thunder, the Masked Raider. Moving from depression towards conflict, America kind of felt it needed heroes, and funnily enough, they, they, um, they turned up. Conversely, in Britain, the outbreak of war killed Stone Dead, two of what have been Britain's biggest um, children's magazines, The Gem and The Magnet, both from Amalgamated Press, and packed with um, the, the boarding school exploits of um, Billy Bunter and the rest of the remove. They were rushed off the scene by two kind of juggernauts from the mighty DC Thompson uh, of Dundee, namely the Dandy and the Beano, but I'm going to pass over them because they're inoffensive, and talk about um, the war. When World War II broke out, lots of established comic book and strip characters joined up and new ones were created specifically to fight the Axis in print. So there's Captain America smacking it to the Fuhrer there. <laughs> and uh, on the right, there's a, a big kind of three of Superman, Robin and Batman uh, doing an advert for war bonds. Batman, the, the Churchillian hero, a superhero there doing V for victory, which you don't see every day. I, I've no idea what Japanazis are. Perhaps someone can explain it to me afterwards. In Britain, comics were used to support the war effort in, in two main ways. The first was to use the visual language of comics in government information and advertising, like in this little gas mask ad from the Home Office. And the second was to use established characters in the service of government. So here's Popeye basically doing a, a kind of a careless talk, toss, uh, cost lives, by threatening to choke someone to death with, with a hanky. But the biggest British comic success of the war that uh, you can see here at, at the archives was, was definitely um, Jane. Jane was another character born in the great supernova of comic characters of the 1930s. <laughs> Norman Pett produced the first uh, Daily Mirror Jane cartoon in 1932, and she started off as a kind of society girl, very interested in fashion. But in 1938, Pett got a new scenario writer, Don Freeman, and in 1940, a new model, Christabel Leighton Porter. And this had the effect of transforming the comic strip into, well, a a comic strip. <laughs> Jane's well-meaning, she's a bit scatty, and she loses her clothes quite a lot. That's, that's, that's pretty much it. The examples I've got here come from, again, uh, cartoons drawn specially for the government. In this case, they're cartoons that Pet drew for Bulldozer, uh, the magazine for combined operations, the marine magazine, basically. They're unusual in the sense that Jane's in uniform, well, she, she's, she's partly in uniform, and they're not arranged like a newspaper comic strip, but you, you, you get the general idea, and, and, and in each one she joins a different service, so there she is flying the flag for um, Britain on the left in signals and on the right looking windswept and falling over in the, uh, in the RAF. Now, there are a few things to say about Jane, particularly in, in the context of this image. Here she is as a deadly SOE secret agent, um, grenades, knife and so on. And here in the corner, topless, about to stab a German soldier who's just shot her clothes off. <laughs> now, that, that combination of sex and violence really ought to be totally unacceptable in the 1940s, but again, it's fine because uh, it's war. Although it's not actually unusual for Jane to be topless, it happened in the Daily Mirror on numerous occasions, but th this level of nudity, well, actually even this level, was not acceptable to publishers in the United States. And, and Pet spent um, many tedious hours drawing the clothes on old editions of Jane for the US market, where the strip eventually flopped. And in fact, he spent so much time that he fell behind with his UK deadlines and was forced to publish an instalment of the strip in which Jane apologised for her absence with the words, give me a break, I can't find my panties. <laughs> and in spite of wartime clothing rationing, the Mirror received large numbers of pairs of panties by return of post. <laughs> Jane was a huge favourite with soldiers, as you might um, expect. These special cartoons with, uh, for bulldozer are very good evidence of that. And over the course of the 1940s, the Daily Mirror's circulation rose and rose. Rather like the Sun in 1992, its staunch support for labour in this case is often seen as the key factor what won it in the general election of 1945. And given that many troops only saw the mirror because of Jane, it's at least an open question whether we're looking here at a woman partly responsible for the welfare state, the NHS, and the other reforms of the Attlee administration. <laughs> Work with me, people. <laughs> now, as we've already seen... This isn't the first time that American comics entered the country. George Orwell describes very evocatively the appearance of the kind of shop pre-war where some American comics could be found. A few posters for the Daily Mail or the News of the World outside, a pokey little window with sweet bottles and packets of players and a dark interior smelling of licorice all sorts and festooned from floor to ceiling with vilely printed tuppenny papers and Yanks mags which were imported shop-soiled from America and sold at tuppence halfpenny or threepence. 
But the war showed America to Britain in a way we'd never experienced before, and, you know, boy, we, we just loved it. Even in the context of the current uh, kind of Obama mania, it's, I'm not sure it's easy, it, certainly not for my generation, to grasp the power that America had on the British imagination, not just at the movies, but in every way, while the GIs were, were over here and, and long after they left. America was so attractive that some British men became what were known as mock Martins. They faked being American in order to get girls. Never had so much been offered by so many to so few, famously quipped Quentin Crisp about the response to the American invasion. And the Americans were generous as well. For British kids, GIs didn't just bring chocolate and bubblegum, they brought comics. And although these had been trickling into British shops since the 1930s, the build-up to Operation Overlord saw many titles circulating from hand to grubby hand for the very first time. So what happened after the war? Well, Peace didn't agree with Jane, I'm sorry to say. Her popularity fell sharply, and Pet moved on to a different strip in 1948. Her success was probably a function of distance. After D-Mob, there were, there were real girls. But the end of the war also had a devastating effect on America's superheroes. Just as war had cut short the careers of the public school boys and the Magna uh, and the Gem, now in Eisenhower's America, people turned away from idealised supermen. And to add insult to injury, what they bought instead were villains. Crime comics were now what the public wanted, by 1947, the best-known title, Crime Does Not Pay, outsold both Superman and Captain Marvel. And by 1948, it had 40 competitors. Again, George Orwell's famous decline of the English murder is, in a sense, that essay is a, a, a swipe at Dashiell Hammett's Americanization of crime that had moved from films and comic books into the real world. Um, but this fondness for comics and the crime and horror genres would ultimately alienate the British public. After the war, obviously, Britain was in hock to the United States. In general, the love affair with all things American uh, music, film, literature continued. But harsh voices began to be raised about the effect that this was having on native British culture on all sides of the political spectrum. Uh, this didn't hamper the interest in Americana, but to some extent, the dollar problem did. For decades after the end of the war, Britain struggled with a series of balance of payments crises. The new world economy required dollars. Britain didn't have enough. We could be seeing that again soon. Embracing Americana meant to some that Britain's precious dollar supply was squandered on pulp fiction and other juvenile trash. And not only that, readers are unconsciously absorbing propaganda for the American way of life, warned the Labour MP Tom Skeffington Lodge in the Commons in November 1947. Rip Kirby battles with gangsters every morning in the Daily Mail. He always drives his big American car on the right-hand side of the road, with the result that his country of origin cannot be concealed. <laughs> Britain was importing a veritable, in his words, a veritable Niagara of piffle and slush, a roaring carnival of quick drinks, adolescent sex, bright lights and dimmed thinking. And I suspect that these were the kind of cheap paperbacks that Skeffington Lodge had in mind. These are some covers helpfully preserved here by Director of Public Prosecution. But for good measure, in March 1950, comic strips were specifically excluded from the import rules that allowed newspapers to enter. But by this point, the most creative opponent of the new American comics had already sprung into action. Like Alfred Harmsworth back in the 1890s, the Reverend Marcus Morris was outspoken in his attacks on the existing publications available for children. In February 1949, he published a piece in the Sunday Dispatch entitled Comics That Bring Horror to the Nursery, um, in which he attacked the new wave of crime and horror comics. But his solution was to beat them at their own game. And with the aid of the artist uh, Frank Hampson, he produced uh, The Eagle, which is certainly the most positive thing to come out of the anti-comics campaign. Eagle was bright, it was colourful, had a kind of square-jawed space-age hero, Dan Dare, obviously, who proved Im uh, immensely popular. But the Eagle also featured Bible stories and hard science. And although some religious conservatives complained about um, errors in the Bible stories or just insisted that religion and comics were completely incompatible, most people accepted that Morrison Hampson had produced a homegrown American-style comic without the negative connotations that were beginning to be applied to that phrase. Britain itself had no comics aimed at teenagers and young adults. There's absolutely no question that these were some of the groups feeding demand for the new kinds of comic, particularly um, national servicemen, and that these comics were different to, therefore, to existing British titles. They weren't new in Britain, but there were clearly more of them than there had been in the 1930s. Um, and there was a problem of expectation. The word comic still conjured for many people in Britain. Ali Sloper and Comic Cuts and the Gem of the Magnet you know, kind of seen through this rosy glow. And developments of the last 20 years had rather passed parents by. Now they began to look at what their children were actually reading with their grown-up protagonists of criminals, vigilantes and monster hunters, and they started to demand action. And the new Conservative government was not unreceptive. Clement Attlee's Labour government previously had taken a relatively relaxed attitude to books that tested boundaries. The Attorney General, um, Hartley Shawcross, was formerly a Nuremberg trial judge, he recently unleashed his fine legal mind on the merits of Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead, 
Now, Shawcross didn't like the book, um, but he allowed it to be published on the understanding that all the swear words were replaced by capital letters and dashes. Subsequently, the Churchill government opted not to foo around. In 1954, 167,000 volumes uh, of uh, indecent literature were destroyed. There were 132 prosecutions under the Obscene Publications Act. 111 people were found guilty of publishing obscene libel. And the historian Alan Travis has called 1954 truly a vintage year for the censors. And it was in the autumn of that year that comics were, were most seriously under attack. So despite the fact that um, there are constant protestations at all levels of government that censorship was not the way we did things in Britain, the reality was very different. Never mind his comic books. The hardboiled fiction writer Mickey Spillane's first famous Mike Hammer novel was banned. I, the jury, um, written in 1947, is listed in the Home Office Blue Book, which was secretly issued to um, chief constables in 1954. And it's, it's down as having been the victim of five destruction orders by magistrates in two different imprints. And the reason it was listed in the book was to encourage more authorities to, to seize it and destroy it. Madame Bovary is also on the list. That has three orders, along with a lot of um, Guy de Maupassant and a very, very large number of authors that I suspect are not writing under the names their mothers gave them, um, and whose books once again came from America. In the summer of 1953, it was extraordinarily the turn of naughty seaside postcards. The government was just leaving no stone unturned. Uh, dimly, the establishment began to realise that amid the censorship of books and magazines and films and plays... There was, an unregulated, there was an unregulated visual art form, um, and now comics might have to be given the treatment. And so the campaigners began to circle. Let's be clear about what some of their basic charges against the comics were. By mid-1952, the dollar problem had become irrelevant. American publishers were now exporting uh, their matrices, what they used to print the comics with, to British publishers who could now produce their own. Since it meant more comics, that wasn't considered to be good news by the campaigners, but it was, it was better for the exchequer. The next weakest charge was slang, since this had obviously been thrown at every children's publication for years, and was so obviously <laughs> true of old British favourites like The Magnet, which has constant refrains of go and eat coke, what the thump, and all that kind of stuff. Related was the fact that they were alleged to have a negative effect on illiteracy. Now, some campaigners were of the view that comics didn't need to be read as such, or that the amount of text in them was, was insignificant, and they could be enjoyed by readers of low to no literacy, but the most sensible would grudgingly admit that they did use a vocabulary that could be helpful to otherwise infrequent readers. There were complaints about the portrayal of women that were too sexy or too masculine or behaved like lesbians or had exaggerated features. Certainly the silhouettes of comic book characters are famously exaggerated, but I have to say, if we put an image unacceptable in the 50s, this is specifically cited in, in, in one book, against one from Jane again, we can see that um, these arguments seem a little bit disingenuous, and there's something about this caption, the, the gentle sex, exclamation mark, in particular, that makes me feel that what it's really saying is, get back in the kitchen. It was also suggested that comics were racist, and they sometimes were, but, but again, tackling of race issues was sometimes misrepresented by overzealous campaigners, eager to see a subtext where, where none existed. The most significant charge was that they could have a permanently damaging mental effect on children, that they were harmful, plain and simple, and that their sadistic focus on violence could cause children to become violent, and that this was different from the old kind of penny-dreadful violence. Uh, it was said to be violence of a, of, a, of a totally new kind. The author J.B. Priestley wrote, It does not suggest the fairground, the cattle market, the boxing booth, the horseplay of exuberant young males, or might I add lower-class males. It smells, he continued darkly, of concentration camps and secret police. And others were happy to stick to the Nazi theme in talking about these comics, despite the fact that um, many of their authors had, were Jewish or uh, had Jewish origins. To make these charges stick, there were a few different tactics. They might kind of sidle up to it. Would it induce a child in similar circumstances to act in the same way? George Pumphrey wandered out loud of a violent strip. I don't know, but I think the risk is a real one. Tactic two was anecdotal evidence, where such and such an appalling crime was linked to comics. It was very rare for those cases to be identifiable. But where they, were, where they were raised in Parliament, government ministers always moved to deny a link. And I haven't found any uh, identifiable cases mentioned uh, in Britain where comics were definitively recorded in a verdict as being to blame for any extreme acts of any kind. Tactic three was simply shock. And the master of this has to be Dr. Frederick Vertum, the American psychologist whose book, Seduction of the Innocent, is a litany of appalling... Um, child violence and abuse, essentially, all of which he lays at the door of the comic book industry. It's a very difficult um, book to read in places. In fact, UK comics campaigners backed away, really, from the book. It is repetitious, angry, and it lacks an index, declared a shocked George <laughs> Pumphrey. 
The case against comics is overstated, and here and there I feel that Dr. Wertham sees things that the ordinary person would not find. And now Pumphrey is probably referring to this. What on earth is that? Oh, it's someone's shoulder. This is one of Wertham's more barking assertions that comics had hidden sexual images in them on top of their obviously already perverse excesses. But he passed over another, Pumphrey passed over another of Wertham's dirty tricks because he engages in it himself, and that's the selection of single panels, or even parts of panels, as you see here, to make, uh, from comics, to take, uh, to make very extreme arguments. Now, you wouldn't make a case for banning American films based merely on a, a dozen stills you've selected from a few recent releases, but the comics campaigners merrily reused a handful of the same panels over and over again in books and articles on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, some of these are graphic and shocking, but they undoubtedly received wider reproduction in the media than in their original circulation. Wurtem was completely unrepentant. He was prone to say things like, I think Hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry. They teach them race hatred at the age of four before they can read. His denunciations, to be honest, verge on the hysterical. Batman, alter ego, um, Bruce Wayne's expensive home, butler, and occasional depiction in a dressing gown mean that he was certainly gay and living in sin with Robin and Wonder Woman was a lesbian into bondage. His sensible arguments that comics depict knife and gun use and also carried adverts for those products are really overwhelmed by this tide of outraged, unsettling and plainly over-the-top assertion in case after horrible case caused by nothing other than reading some books. But in May, by May 1952, the Times was reporting that the RSPCA was blaming a rise in child cruelty to animals on gangster films, divorce, failing Sunday school attendance and the evil effects of American comics. And this is really the way that the debate was, was turning. But by taking a step back from the content for a second, is it possible to look at the problem in, in different ways? I mean, were, were these comics even genuinely popular? Certainly there are a very large number of titles. The Comics Campaign Council alone assessed 114, and UK-wide annual sales were in the hundreds of millions of copies. But Pumphrey's own estimates suggest that the sales of all foreign comics together were less than the annual sales of the Beano and he insisted that most of those were objectionable, but as we'll see, that, that's very unlikely. But also copies of some of the horror comics, most prized by the campaigners for the effects they could have on public opinion, were very scarce, um, whereas they claimed that they were, they were very easy to get hold of. Throughout 1952, the government insisted it wasn't thinking of a change in the law on comics, even though by this time it had the examples of laws that had been passed in Commonwealth countries. And in public, it wasn't dismissive of the campaigners' views, but in private, it was a different matter. These are notes from a meeting between the Home Secretary, the President of the Board of Trade, and the Education Minister in uh, July 1952. And the person taking the note says, The Minister of Education's view was that the whole business was being overplayed. A good many of the things were no more than the ordinary, natural and harmless desire to children to read exciting and blood-curdling stories and to play games representing deeds of crime and violence. Not sure how far the less desirable specimens were being read by children or by the immature adult. Not sure if such comics were in fact really doing children the harm that some people supposed. In any case, if there were, there was little she thought the government could do about it because the government could never adequately replace the parent or the teacher and it was wrong to try and do so. And then the Home Secretary dismissed American attempts at a voluntary code of practice for publishers as unworkable in this country. And he ridiculed the Canadian government for passing a law making it an offence to distribute practically every fairy tale, the Robin Hood stories and so on. Canada banned any depiction of crime, effectively, in fiction, uh, by not wording their law terribly tightly. <laughs> he concluded, there was incidentally no real evidence that any of the recent crimes of violence could be attributed to the effects of the reading of comics on their perpetrators. And the document finishes, the government should refuse to take any legislative action since the government were not altogether convinced that a real problem existed and were certain that it could not be cured by any government action, there was no point in setting up a committee of inquiry. Everyone agreed that legislation was not a good idea, so why less than three years later was an act in force? Answering that question is really very difficult and complicated um, and may or may not involve subversion by the Communist Party. Um, but essentially the government was railroaded into lawmaking by a wave of popular opinion. MPs, especially Dr Horace King, the MP for Test, simply would not leave the issue alone. And eventually the Cabinet Secretary's notebooks make it clear it was the threat of a private member's bill from an unnamed MP, but my guess would be uh, King, that forced the government into action, and no more and no less. But why were members so much more exercised in 1954 than they had been in 1952? 
I think that finally uh, there was a kind of critical mass of support. 1954 saw the release of Frederick Burton's shocking book, Seduction of the Innocent. By the summer, the United States had begun Senate hearings into juvenile delinquency, and these mostly looked at drug use, films and so on, but comics had their place too, and Frederick Burton was one of the star witnesses. Because the authors and publishers were based in America, also there was a sense that comics just appeared here um, impersonally and like something nasty leaking out of a sewage pipe. The, the writer Phyllis Picard used precisely that sort of language, saying that the phenomenon was like watching children drinking the city river water, while virtuous philosophers have sincerely shouted, naughty children, it is poisoned, you will die. Irresponsible merchants who found it remunerative to tip the refuse this way shouted, not quite sincerely, don't be mean, children relish germs, we all drank germs, what they need is more germs. In America, the publishers stood up for themselves, despite some communities piling up comics and burning them in public. Bill Gaines, the head of entertaining comics, um, went in fighting. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid, he declared. <laughs> but things didn't go that well. Really, the most iconic moment of those hearings came when Senator Keyforver, then one of America's most famous politicians for his work against uh, tackling organised crime, and he, he'll be a future vice-presidential candidate. He, he brandished before Gaines this large blown-out image from the cover of EC's Crime Suspense Stories magazine showing the head of a decapitated woman, and he demanded to know whether Gaines thought this image was in good taste. And Gaines, perhaps a little bit overconfident and allegedly under the influence of a large quantity of Benzedrine, said yes... What would be in bad taste was if the head was turned at a slightly different angle and there was more, obviously, dripping blood. And that, funnily enough, wasn't a winning argument. <laughs> now, in fact, the Senate Committee's interim report, which we hold here in the archives, says quite clearly, majority opinion seems inclined to the view that it is unlikely that the reading of crime and horror comics would lead to delinquency in a well-adjusted and normally law-abiding child. But the committee also concluded that comics could worsen existing antisocial tendencies, teach criminal techniques and were used in the USSR to undermine the morale of youth in many countries by pointing to crime and horror as portrayed in American comics as one of the end results of the most successful capitalist nations on earth. And it also quoted the concerns of British MPs. So in late October 1954, days after the Home Secretary, Gwilym Lloyd George, has again been questioned in the House of Commons on the subject of the, the US industry was forced to adopt a comics code, partly based on the Hayes production code that filmmakers uh, in Hollywood had to abide by. And the code, it's pretty easy to be mean about the code. I mean, it, it has a lot of bizarre, rather random, there's a ban on werewolves, for example, and it says things like, divorce shall not be treated humorously. But it was firm in cracking down on nudity, scenes of excessive violence, and all lurid, unsavoury, gruesome illustrations. And it also did things like the word crime couldn't appear on the front of a comic in too large a type. Those were all issues that had been campaigned against in, in Britain. British legislators kind of failed to see that just as, as America had supplied the problem, it had also happily supplied the solution. If it regulated comics, Britain wouldn't need to. The, the, the supply would simply dry up. But British campaigners assumed that the code wouldn't work, and they pushed on. And in fact, they were wrong about that. The code, with quite a lot of modification, is, is actually still around today, although most major companies now use their own in-house rules. So in November, the three major British publishers of horror comics all abruptly retired. But still, the unstoppable legislative move continued. What had got Parliament so set, I think, was firstly a deputation from the Archbishop of Canterbury, which basically suggested that comics were the biggest moral issue of the day, which is pretty weird. And secondly, the National Union of Teachers, they put on a huge exhibition at their London headquarters, and that subsequently moved to Westminster Hall, actually in the Houses of Parliament. And that, just the sight of that seemed to convince a lot of people that something had to be done. The Archbishop of York said they were the most horrible productions he'd ever seen. And, you know, decades before Andrew Lloyd Webber hit the West End, he's entitled to his view. <laughs> but even before the exhibition, some self-appointed comics experts were effectively suggesting the idea of gateway comics. There are certainly two types, explained Karis Frankenberg to the Salford City Register, but the danger is that the ordinary one bought by children softens up and leads to the more objectionable kind. Now, just about everyone was united in the view that something had to be done. Really, for the government, legislation becomes the easy way out. And this was the background in which Churchill asked for comics. I've actually mentioned in Hansard these, these are. In November 1954, the Labour MP Barnett Stross asked the Home Secretary, Lloyd George, in the Commons, is it true that, as we've read, he has been supplying the Prime Minister with horror comics? Will he tell us what reaction he has had from the Prime Minister? And the great man rose, and he said... 
I asked to see some specimens some weeks ago, but I've not yet had time to examine them. So I don't know if Churchill ever did read through the seven comics that presumably some anonymous Home Office civil servant passed on, but if he did, what would we have learned? Well, there are seven in the file, three westerns, two horror, a superhero and a crime. Let's take a look at a few pages and finally see what all the fuss was about. This is one example. This is Black Magic number 10. It's been printed in Britain, as have all the Churchill comics, in this case by the Jensen Book Company in Leicester, and you can see the price. It's a shilling. Ouch. Black Magic is certainly a title that was targeted by anti-comics campaigners. Phyllis Picard's group of five adults reviewing works for the Comics Council rated it C-C-D-E-E. So it's not the worst available, but that counts as very objectionable, apparently. Much of the 13 stories deal with death. Much is horrible, wrote one of our adult reviewers. Moss great from skulls of executed men, faceless people, flagellation of women. Well, there's none of that in this issue, well, apart from death. The cover story, this is, this is the end of his rope, about the terrifying ageing that affects a man who climbs the rope in the Indian rope trip. Actually, this cover completely ruins the story, which relies on the shock revelation for its impact. And actually, the artwork inside in that story isn't nearly as kind of vivid as, um, as, as that is. Inside, the story on the right is the sniper. The living and the dead both moved in the sight of the sniper. Scary. It's not a zombie story, actually. It's about a soldier helped by a ghost. To be honest, I've had lunch that was more terrifying. <laughs> that's, that's followed by a short story, um, Murdering Grove County. And that shows, incidentally, that you'll find ordinary prose in these magazines. They're, they're not just comic stories. Next is Possessed a gothic horror set in Eastern Europe. Death couldn't separate them, etc., etc. Then, Fly by Night, businessman Arnold uses astral projection to scare to death the man having an affair with his wife. These stories are very short. They're only about six pages each or so. Number 23, a man's greed and obsession with the number 23 is cut short by his death in a plane crash. To be honest, you could find more shocking material in Roald Dahl. Jack the Ripper, turns out that Jack, uh, who has really bad Victorian mutton chops, nips out of his grave occasionally to off nosy American tourists who loiter around his tombstone. And then another short story, Laughter of the Cat God, You're in the Mill, Ancient Egyptian Curse type thing. Vampire at the Window. Now, this is actually written by Stan Lee. It's, well, yeah, obviously, the Stan Lee, biggest thing in comics, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Spider-Man, all the big names. It's quite a nice example of what the comics publisher Bill Gaines called um, an O. Henry ending. He was trying to kind of align his writing to this kind of famous 19th century um, short story writer. So in the last panel, a detective brought in to do something about the vampire sighting turns out to be a vampire himself. Straight on to Man with a Tail, another story of how crime definitely does not pay as the title character, a cat burglar, is killed by a sinister cat person. And then Sweet Little Old Ladies, that's another Stanley kind of Italian gangster, holds up with some little, sweet little old ladies who turn out to be witches and conspire to cook him in a pot. And we see his reaction, but his, his kind of grisly fate is only implied. That's one of a number of stories in Black Magic marked the editor's guarantee that this is one of the most astonishing stories you've ever read. <laughs> I, I guarantee that it's not. <laughs> and finally, the collection rounds out with The Last Krull and The Heap. And to be honest, I have to say, it is, it's kind of rubbish. But as G.K. Chesterton famously wrote in his defence of Penny Dreadfuls, bad story writing is not a crime... Mr. Hall Kane, the romantic novelist, walks the streets openly and cannot be put in prison for an anticlimax. And that, that is, of course, why Enid Blyton and Barbara Cartland are contemporaries and not cellmates. M- moving on. Shazam, Captain Marvel, for a mere sixpence. This is Captain Marvel Faces Fear. The good captain, alias Sir Billy Batson, boy newscaster for Station Wiz, averts nuclear disaster, but fortunately it turns out to have been an irrational fear all along because nuclear stuff is fine because it's the 50s. <laughs> and finally, yes, Casey Ruggles. Uh, now, I have to say, I quite, I quite enjoyed this. I shouldn't have said that. Unlike the others in the collection, it's basically one long, kind of rather melodramatic story, of which this is, kind of, this is one instalment. It's a slightly kind of hysterical duel between Ranger Casey and Soldier Beauregard over um, Casey's girl. And a surprising twist, believing Casey dead, his boy sidekick, Kit Fox, shoots Beauregard and then leaves for exile in the mountains where he meets Kit Carson. Can he find redemption? I've no idea. We've only got the one. What, what Winston would have made of it all, I have no idea. We've got a different question to answer, and that is how representative are these comics of what was available at the time in Britain? I mean, they, they aren't the worst of the worst, and some are considered you know, completely harmless by the pressure groups, but they have been selected. I wouldn't expect to see the Beano or the Dandy in this file, but where are the other big names? Why is there no Superman or Batman? No crime doesn't pay, just as traps are guilty anything like that. I mean, we can find frames within them if we ruthlessly select as the comics 
campaigners did, which are violent, feature horror elements or bad language, really bad language. By the way, Ginny, did I ever tell you we discovered that the old man had been systematically murdered by arsenic doses? <laughs> it's pretty painful, but there are no, no four-letter words or anything of that, uh, that sort. Some, some genres are missing. There's nothing set in space. There's no what we might call romance comics. These are American examples from the softer end of the market. Teenage romances. You'll never get him back, and that little cheat will do anything to hold Dick. And John Juan, the one and only super lover, written by, written by Jerry Siegel, the co-creator of Superman. Now, who knows if these were ever sold in Britain? My guess is that they simply weren't. The complaints about horror comics focus on the sexual elements of gothic horror and the crime and superhero genres. And I think if this stuff, there are much more bizarre examples than this, believe me, had been on British shelves, there would have been a stream of complaints in print, and we simply don't have that. But I'd say these, after all, were not what the Harmful Publications Act were designed to get rid of. In its own words, it deals with depictions of the commission of crimes or acts of violence or cruelty or instance of repulsive or horrible nature. And every campaigner would have agreed that Britain was awash with comics that fitted that description. So can I have a little bit of audience participation? Who thinks that after the Act was passed, lots of comics were prosecuted, say, in the period 1955 to 1960? Any guesses as to how many prosecutions there were? Very good. I can, I can probably I can just leave you. You can do the rest of the time. Um, there were no prosecutions. There were no prosecutions as far as anyone has been able to gather until 1970. And that was for two main reasons. Firstly, because, as we've said before, the comics code in the US had killed off many of the titles that were so objected to here. And the second reason was because of an amendment of the Act at committee stage that meant no prosecution could proceed without the agreement of the Attorney General. Between 1955 and 1970, at least a dozen publications were referred to the Attorney General by the Department of Public Prosecution or the police forces. Now, it hasn't been possible until now to know why those prosecutions were rejected because the files were marked closed until 2030, 2040, whatever. But literally last week, I, I had them opened. So just for you lucky, lucky people. So I'm now in a position to reveal, first up, Classics Illustrated, Theobald Matthew, the DPP, uh, Director of Public Prosecution, says, although personally I cannot conceive of anything that can be said in favour of such publications, as director I agree that this one does not contravene the provisions of the Act. Next, Batman, Wiz Comics, Master Comics, all sent in by the Met. The Attorney General says, the attorney does not think a prosecution will result in a conviction likely to do more harm than good. And he adds... Right, always appears to triumph in the end. May 1956, two crime comics for our good friends at the Comics Campaign Council. They must have been really hoping with these. From the Chief Constable of Wolverhampton, Impact. The Attorney General says, Impact is nothing like a horror comic. <laughs> when prosecutions were finally brought successfully in the 1970s, it was on the back of a new ultra-conservative Attorney General, a Vertimesque psychiatrist report we hold here and the main defendant, a 69-year-old widow, pleading guilty. No one ever firmly argued that the comics involved could not corrupt a child. And the file here from the Department of Public Prosecution has a note which reads, the covers of these mags are far worse than the contents, which in my view are the ordinary run-of-the-mill horror stories which have little effect on the average child. And as I said at the beginning, the 1955 publications that remains on the statute book. I don't want to spend time on a, on a grand conclusion. I'm just going to provocatively say that I think the whole thing happened to do with British society overreacting to the effect of their children's wartime experiences and leave it at that. All the references I've used in this will be up on your archives shortly. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 22nd of January 2009 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.